Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. In this episode of our Case Notes podcast, we are exploring geriatric medicine. We'll be looking at the history and then talking to Dr. Martin Wilson. We don't have a historical case study today. Instead, Martin is going to tell us more about some of the fascinating patients he has met in his work. Before the 20th century, there was very little support or treatment for elderly people. As a result, they often end up spending years or even decades in asylums, hospitals or workhouses. One such 18th century institution, the Newcastle Dispensary, said in its regulations that, quote, while decay from old age meant that death be inevitable, that humanity will prompt a physician to contribute every aid from medicine in order to alleviate the most painful symptoms. Although it did conclude this statement by saying that one disadvantage in treating elderly patients was that these particular sufferers are almost always persistent and apt to complain. During the 19th century, urbanization removed people from traditional support networks, making it harder for them to care for the sick or the aged. This meant a growing number of individuals suffering from conditions like dementia were placed by their families in asylums. Diagnosis and treatment did also take place outside the forbidding walls of the workhouse and asylum, though. One 17th century book on the subject was written by Dr. Tancred Robinson, who was a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of London. Robinson was a friend of the British Museum founder Hans Sloane and a physician to the king. This book detailed the story of Henry Jenkin, a man who had allegedly died in 1670 at the age of 169. Or perhaps not. Jenkin was born before parish records were maintained, so his remarkable claim cannot be verified. He put his unusually long life down to a diet which included raw onions, nettle soup, and tar water. The book said that, quote, "'Tis to be wished that particular inquiries were made and answered concerning the temperament of this man's body, his manner of living, and all other circumstances which might furnish any useful instructions to those who are curious about longevity." Another book, published in the early 18th century by John Floyer and titled The Art of Preserving Old Men's Healths, was the first book in English purely on the subject of geriatric medicine. The author recommended cold plunge baths, although he did note that, quote, Physicians oft find it a difficult task to conquer the aversions of nice patients. I expect to find an aversion to cold bathing. Another important work on geriatric medicine was published around the same time, 
Its author, George Cheney, was a Scottish doctor, originally from Aberdeen. Cheney was a very popular and fashionable doctor in the 18th century. His service was sought after by many wealthy members of high society. His book was called An Essay of Health and Long Life, and in it he gave his rules for a healthy life, covering diet, exercise and sleep. Finally, we come to the 19th century, and two important studies of geriatric medicine. The first of these is the first clinical description of the disease known as Parkinson's. James Parkinson was a physician and geologist practicing in London. Parkinson wrote his most important work, titled An Essay on the Shaking Palsy, after years of observing people with this condition on the streets around Hoxton Square in London, where he practiced and lived. He made careful notes on their condition and deterioration over the years, and, although unable to offer a cure, decided to publish his observations to, as he put it, excite the attention of those who may point out the means of relieving a tedious and most distressing malady. The signs and symptoms of the disease had been noted by physicians before Parkinson, but he was the first who recognised that they represented a single disease. His observations, although without the advantages of any post-mortem examinations, were so accurate that most of the essay remains relevant to the description of patients with Parkinson's disease today. The second major 19th century text on diseases of the elderly was the work of the English physician Barnard Van Oven. Van Oven wrote a book titled on the decline of life and health and disease. In this, he wrote that, quote, It will readily be seen that a vast number of those who attained a very old age passed through life remarkably free from disease. Many were never ill, never took medicine, retained the powers of body and mind until the latest period, and seemed to sink suddenly into the arms of death without passing through any period of decay and decrepitude. In an appendix, Van Oven provided a series of tables showing the names of 1,500 men and women who had attained ages from 100 to 110, 331 between 110 and 120, and 47 who were said to have exceeded even that age. Like the story of 169-year-old Henry Jenkin from two centuries earlier, the desire to believe in remarkable longevity remained. Welcome to the podcast. We have here with us today, Dr. Martin Wilson. I just wondered if we could kick off with you just telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are and, and where you work. Hello, I'm Martin Wilson. I'm a consultant. I work in Kerry Audley. I'm based in Inverness in Highland. I trained initially in Glasgow, where I was born and raised and did training in various parts of Scotland and eventually found myself in Inverness and I cover that in parts of Highland. I've been involved with both the colleges and particularly Edinburgh for the last um the last few years. Thank you very much. So we're going to start off with a little bit of a horrible question, which is how do you define geriatric medicine? What is it? So unlike lots of other specialties, that's actually quite tricky. So if I was a cardiologist, I would say I deal with hearts. And if I was a renal physician, I would say I deal with kidneys. And if I was a surgeon, I would say I would operate on things. Geriatrics is a bit difficult because there's um, it, it, there, there is an element of function to it. So we 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 deal with older adults, um, adults who are at least 75, if not older than that, but adults who also have an age-related problem associated with it, that their age is in some way impacting um, on them. So I will get people who are 85 who are not geriatric at all, some of whom are in the royal family running around the world doing wonderful things, and they're not geriatric at all, they've got no functional problems related to elderly, not really many medical conditions, and that's fine. But I've got some people who are much younger who have functional problems related to age, often we define that as frailty, and, and that's 
and that's how we define it. So it's not just um, your age, it's an age plus something that affects your day-to-day function and that, that's kind of why geriatrics exists. Thank you. So I think um, geriatric medicine is maybe one that people are at least somewhat aware of, and I think increasingly so. Um, but I was just wondering, you know, are there any sort of stereotypes around geriatric medicine, any myths you could dispel, or equally anything that would surprise people about what your work involves? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think the biggest thing about it is just trying to get that difference between it not just being old people, it being something functional. So we will we will deal with with younger people, younger people as well. I mean, one of the uh, one of the misnomers. So one of the things is that very few people um, decide to do medicine because they want to do geriatrics. It doesn't sound particularly dynamic, you know. And I'm not going to name other specialties, but compared to some other things as well, it's something that people tend to come to a bit later. But the misconception is it is quite dynamic and it is quite um, good for people with short attention spans. So if I'm dealing with an older individual who's not functioning very well, the determination of whether we as a team have done well or not is do they feel better and do they function better within a relatively short period of time? So a lot of other conditions, you were dealing with people with conditions for 10, 20, 30 years to try and make small changes over a long period of time so that they get better at a later later stage. I love all my patients, but very few of them have got 20 or 30 years left to live. Okay, I need to make things better for them soon and now. And that immediacy of it, I think, is quite attractive. And people don't really, um, I don't think people necessarily recognise that. They think that it's kind of maybe a bit slow. We've got to potentially got to do things a bit quickly. Um, what The other general misconception is that how much of jet, med, uh, but geriatrics is about problem solving. So often, if we get an older adult who's in hospital, they've got some functional problems, they've got some medical problems, um, typically there are a lot of different medications, uh, that can involve an awful lot of problem solving as to work out exactly why they've unraveled in the first place and how to put them back together again. And that unraveling is a bit of a detective challenge often. There's often a mix of social things and functional things and medical things. And ironing all of that out is, 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 is quite a fascinating process, really, and, and potentially quite rewarding and I, and I think I think a lot of people maybe don't 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 rec, don't recognize that um, um so we feel a bit like detectives an awful lot of the time the crime being the old person falling apart and the, the solution being you know in what direction is that going in so um we, you've you've touched on this already but you know what have been the significant changes do you think in geriatric medicine over the course of of your career your working career so the biggest thing has been the lack of so that we don't tolerate things in the way we used to. Things that were considered as part of the just general doing business are no longer accepted as part of general doing business. So, so when I started in 1996, pressure sores would be extremely common. Horrible things. So, and they would occur in hospitals. So there was a while where everyone I admitted to rehab after heart fracturing femurs, almost all of them would have pressure area damage. And it was just considered that was just what happened. And there was a lot done to try and make sure that that was not seen as that was seen as preventable and avoidable and remediable, and it could be fixed and it could be avoided. And now pressure sores in the hospital are almost seen as a crime. You know, if they occur, there's an investigation. There's forms, we, we work out why that why that occurred. It's not that we never see them anymore. They happen in the community and things. But but that that business of that you see something that you just take has been part of part of part of doing business. Part of what happens to old people in the hospital is now not seen as acceptable. Things that are getting work on now are people that become acutely confused, delirium this business of people get acutely confused in hospital. It's, again, has been, you know, 
you know, if you look back far enough, it's just seen as the sort of thing that, that happens. But now it's seen as something that we need to address, try and avoid where we can. And I think that's where things in elderly medicine are going to go forward, that, that an awful lot of the changes with age are not irreversible. People, loss of function is not necessarily irreversible. Sometimes it is, but it's not It's not a general thing. And I think that going forward is, is where we're going to see a difference. The expectations of what people can expect when people get older will go up. And that's a good thing and will drive improvements. That's really that's really interesting. Thank you. So um, we're now getting on to my personal favourite bit, which I, I'm really interested in, in the history of medical specialties and, and especially in the history of geriatrics. So I'm interested in, you know, your perspective on the history of your specialty. Are there any moments from the past that sort of or, or figures from, from, from the past of your specialty that stand out as important or, or influential for you? Yeah. So geriatrics is easy because we have an undoubted medical hero, and that's Marjorie Warren, who basically got geriatrics going in the first place. So she was born 1897 and started doing her um, medicine in the 30s and the 40s. And she was the one that identified that elderly patients needed a specific way to look after them and needed to be looked after by people who were specifically interested in that. And um, and what's, what's terrific is that some of her... Um, findings are just extremely relevant now. So she wrote articles in the 1940s, one that she wrote in 1946, and she was talking about the problems of the aging population. And that was in 1946, when average life expectancy was about 62, 63, and they just come out of World War. So what she did, she was medical director in a wee hospital in England. And they, at that moment, that time, had lots of what they would call long-stay wards. Back in those days, it would still be called poor houses. And they had hundreds of people in them, and she would review them and find out why they were there, get them rehabilitated and often get them home. Now, what was interesting, those wards were full of people with everything, people with uh, people with dementia, people that had strokes, people that had falls, people that just got stuck and were being ignored, even down to she was finding people in there who were single mothers who got stuck in hospital with a child and could not then support themselves. So the single mother, she helped get jobs, got them jobs, got them independent, got them out again and showed that you could get these things moving. And that was that was really very important. Um, you've got to be careful reading some of our articles because the, they are written with a 1940s style, but some of our quotes are incredible and some of our statements are, are awesome. So she was one of the ones that detected early on that women have a much bigger problem in older age than men. Still the case. Women look after their men. Their men die. There's nobody left to look after them. Women tend to live longer. They tend to be fitter. And that's still the case. If you're a woman in Scotland now, you're twice as likely to have a care home as your location of death than a man. And that is purely dynamics. So because the women will be left in their own and nobody there to, to look after them. Um, she also talks greatly about the different issues about a bit about status and a bit about um, what it seemed to be. So a lot of things that are useful when you're old um, are people to care for you and look after you, hands-on care, people to look after care and people look after nursing. And they're typically um, historically associated with female workers. As we know that anything that's historically associated with female workers are paid less and have less status. Okay, and that's and that's well recognised. So obviously we have male carers now, male nurses, and male people working in homes. But largely, um, if you look at a society point of view, they're seen as largely female roles. And if you have any roles looked at a female role, they, it will be paid less and it will have less status. And she was recognising that all the way back in the forties. And all those lessons now are valuable now. So to fix society going forward, all the things that help fix old people like care and attention have to be seen as as valuable as all the heroic things like building bridges and doing operations and fixing things and valued as that and trained as that to have any way going forward. 
Um, so, so her articles now are just, it's amazing how much has changed, but in, all, in some ways how little has changed. So that would be, that would be my hero. Um, so we're coming towards the end now, but there's one question which we can't really entirely avoid. So we're talking at the end of March 2022 and uh, COVID. So essentially, you know, I, I'm interested to know, hopefully less now than it was a year or two ago, but presumably still some impact on the work that you do. So what has been the impact of coronavirus on your work? So, so COVID has been catastrophic. <clears throat> you know, it's been for the whole for the whole of society, but it has been disproportionately felt by anyone who was in any way on the edges of society. So if you're in a deprived postcode or a deprived area, you're much more likely to get sick, much more likely to die. If you're old and you're frail, you're much more likely to get sick, you're much more likely to get die. Anyone that was in the edges of society in any way, it was, it was catastrophic for. And indeed, in some ways that reflects what the issue with older people is in general. So I mentioned earlier on that it was a functional issue. And I often, I always used to think that care of the elderly um, was related to just people weren't fond of old people and didn't like that. And actually, that's not true. I worked in paediatrics for a while. And, I, I, you know, long story short, I ended up working in paediatrics. Oh, it's going to be brilliant paediatrics. Everybody loves children. They will be drowned in money and love and all the rest of it. So, and, that, and that's not true either. It was, and I found in paediatrics, the kids that struggled the most at the whole service were the kids that were in the, the extremes of society, kids in foster care, kids that had trouble, kids that had difficult parenting. And they, they struggled just as much to get what they needed as my older people. People who were in the edge of society struggled and it looked that their problems were different but it looked very similar and that has been reflected and totally amplified in COVID so if you were a, an older person that was in any way isolated from society and out with society you 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 struggled dramatically and a lot of these people lost enormous function amounts of function whereas older people who were well into society and had relatives around them and people that were supporting them did, did they still struggled but they did an awful lot better and it really reinforced my idea that a lot of problems we've got with older people and actually younger people as well is social isolation. If people drift away from the centre of society and society's attention span, they tend to do really badly. So I worry about the funding of care homes and care at home. If I was a paediatrician, I'd probably be talking the same about children's homes. You know, it's not, you know, that, that it's, it's not, it's not, age isn't the issue. It's how peripheral you get to what society counts as being important. Who's going to shout for you? Um, and people who have people with, with um, political muscle and, you know, and all the rest of it to shout for you will, will, will do better. So if my kids are ill, I'll fight like hell to get them better. Okay, if my parents were unwell, they've now gone away. I'll fight like hell to make sure they get what they want. A lot of older people don't have people to shout for them like that. And actually, sadly, a lot of children are in the same situation. So if you're socialized and, and COVID has really amplified that. I'm going to talk I'm going to, have to talk a bit more about this because it's been difficult. So, so the first thing that happened is an awful lot of people died. I sadly was involved with care home outbreaks in the pre-vaccination phase where 30 to 40 percent of residents died. It, unbelievably numbers and, and, and a ward initially pre-vaccinated again that the fatality rates were about the same it's almost inconceivable what it's like to work in that environment i know there was a channel 4 program help that was on about that recently even it didn't catch the absolute magnitude of that and what that has done both now and onwards to our care home sector if they were affected the psychological impact on the staff some of whom just can't work anymore and the patients you know the patients who survived even if they were cognitively impaired saw that that horror which was largely in closed doors and not not seen <clears throat> not seen going forward and that um, has really affected our care home sector 
the viability of a care home sector has been really deeply hit by that. And we need a care home sector. At some point in your life, you may well need to be in a care home. You might not want to be there, but you equally might not want to be in an intensive care unit. But equally, you will want there to be a local intensive care unit that's functioning should you need to have it. And that's going to take an awful lot of long time to fix. The other thing that's going to take an awful lot of long time to fix is that for years and years and years, I would be talking to patient groups and going, eat, drink and be merry. Okay, eat well. Drink, don't drink alcohol, but drink enough fluid and be merry. Get out, see people, get out your house as much as you can, interact with as many people as you can, because that is what makes life worth living, but also has such a positive impact on the individual. And try and fight against this idea of people being socially isolated and stuck. But for two years now, we're told older people to stay in their house, not see anybody. And a lot of people have done that and survived. It was a necessary thing to happen, but are struggling to get out and about now, have lost years worth of function because they've just not got out and they've not got exercised and that the society over the next couple of years once COVID has passed it's still raging in the background as we're talking just now with a much less severe form it's still raging in the background is to get that population out and about and moving again and it will not just be true for the elderly it'll be true with people that suffer from social isolation in all ages and, and that that's going to be the big fight and every day in clinic now I'm talking to people that have not been out, literally out their houses in years and we've got a lovely day outside so I'll say just walk to the end of your driveway and back you know do something to get out and about and that would be the that would be the the biggest thing that we need to do going forward. So we're coming to the end now, really. But I just wanted to ask before before we finish, um, is there anything that you haven't been asked that you wish you'd been asked? Is there anything else that you would like to say? No, I think we've kind of covered it. I think, you know, I think it was going to take, I think I was just trying to give an overview is that that, that Jenny actress in the specialty, it, it's not unique, but but the, the social aspect of people's care is, is, as impo- is as important as the medical aspect. And that's partly why some of my answers have derived down more larger society issues about deprivation and social isolation and things like that as well because and there'll be other specialties that see this but I can just talk about my own you just see it every day the importance of the wider social elements um, are as important as medicine and the pills that people uh, take and for the big improvements in health in general it's well recognized that the big improvements in health don't come from medication and pills it comes in differences in how society lives and how society operates so um, things like improved housing is one of the reasons why life expectancy improved in the UK. It was nothing to do with pills. You know, uh, life expectancy in the UK was improving before antibiotics came along. It came that, you know, people had decent houses that didn't leak and weren't mouldy and, you know, less of it as well, and that the air wasn't polluted and that, you know, all of these public health measures that people exercise a bit more. And for elderly people, it's just, I would highlight the things that, you know, I really don't want a pill to fix older people. I would just want them to be part of society and interacting well and getting exercise that they enjoy would be the thing that I think would make the biggest difference. And you'll find a lot of geriatricians are a bit political and, um, uh, you know, political with a small P. You know, I don't mean labour, but, you know, the, the wider aspects of how society operates mm-hmm. is just so core. And it's just because I was saying my answers already, but it's completely core. So if you've got a family who care for you, you will do and look after you, you will do much better. I mean, it's not for it, but there were studies done years and years ago that patients who get visitors in hospital live longer and do better than people that don't get visitors. Isn't that astonishing? Yeah. You know, you know that that level of um, that level of that, and they've done they've done kind of cohort studies and things like that in, in, in London, the London area, and people who are isolated from society have worse morbidity and mortality. You know, whereas people that are involved in society society do better, and 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 that. You know, that being just such a that's such a major task, particularly with this bulging aging population. So a third of older people past 75 will the prediction is will be living on their own and have no family to look after them. You know, and that's 
you know going to 2035 and that that's that's quite that's quite that's quite staggering we're going to need to need to do something about that thank you so much martin this this was really fascinating thank you for joining us and thank you very much indeed Today, instead of a historical case study, Martin is going to tell us a bit more about some of the patients he's met under his care. You go through, you go through a care home, you will meet people who have vivid recollections of times that are now, you know, gone to us. You know, I've met people that have been in D-Day beaches, people that have been in Battle of Britain. I remember speaking to an old lady who um, flew into Europe as part of SOE in the Second World War and was determined to go home, even though she was unsafe to do so. And you are not going to be able to talk down somebody who... Um, parachuted into occupied France you know you know there are, I mean a lot of those are dead now but, but they, they they have they are just walking history and and it is you know it's just you know I have the most fascinating patients I mean sometimes on a Friday afternoon I'll speak uh, to my colleague I share an office with and like you know this is the wonderful top trump wonderfully interesting person I bumped into this week you'll never guess what this one did and um and it inspires me as well you know I think I should have a bit more of an interesting life than I do because at some point in a care home somebody will ask you what you did with your life and and these a lot of these folk have done phenomenal things i speak to american and i say look everyone has done something interesting in your life right if, if they've lived till 80 or 90 and even if they've done nothing interesting that in itself is fascinating <laughs> if you've managed to do nothing interesting in 80 or 90 years that's remarkable and um and just quietly all these uh, you know all these all these wonderful stories yes yeah. so yeah i would highly i agree with my palliative care colleague there one of my favorites is occasionally you'll meet old women it's usually women who were premature children. So I met one who was a pound and a half or something, you know, like ridiculously small when she was born. Um, <clears throat> doctor comes along and says, baby's going to die. And again, 89 years ago, lots of babies died. Very tragic. And that, that's how it was. But the family went, oh, no, 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 no. So they, they were used to dealing with premature sheep the whole time. So they put her in the oven, left the door open a wee bit, wrapped her up, did what they did with sheep. And, uh, and that woman lived until she was 90s. She was called the miracle baby of hoy. And, um, and I was like going that's a story and a half you know you know wouldn't you have just loved to be able to get in your time machine and show her parents look you know it was actually a granny that sorted out this is what's going to happen she's going to live for another night wouldn't the doctor that was involved love to have known that this person's going to live to be 90 odds you know some um no there's some wonderful and that and that is what that that's what keeps that's what keeps us going day to day and it, and it's one of these things that encourage people into care home care encourage people into care homes is it gets them over that fear of it being old because because if you don't spend a lot of time talking to people in different generations, <clears throat> it feels a strange thing to do. Whereas if you're forced in some way to do that, you get it really quickly and go, actually, you're just an old version of me, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, and um, and actually an old version of me who was much cooler than I was when you were my age, you know, and uh, and did and did all, uh, <clears throat> you know, and potentially and potentially did all these things and lived through, you know, all, you know, all sorts of things. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage. And we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.